0: So as an industry, we're on a pathway to achieve some transformational things with digital health. The potential to deliver better patient outcomes and a more efficient system is real. But have we set ourselves up for success in the first place? Is this kind of reality where digital health is embraced across the ecosystem even possible with the foundations that we have in place? Or have we missed something critical along that journey? Well, I'm going to be discussing that whole concept with my guest today, none other than Tim Blake, the managing director of Semantic Consulting. We're going to be talking about digital health literacy of health providers, digital health maturity, medication education, and lots more. This is episode 150 team health tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Burge, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Tim Blake, the Managing Director of Semantic Consulting, a consulting firm focused on leading digital change in healthcare. Tim's no stranger to talking health tech, joining us way back in episode two and then again in episode 50, exactly 100 episodes ago. If you don't know Tim, he was previously the CIO of the Tasmanian Department of Health, Director of Rural E-Health Strategy at New South Wales Health, and Strategic Advisor at NITA, which is now the ADHA and the Department of Health. Hey, Tim, how are you doing?
1: Hey, Pete. Wonderful to be back on the podcast.
0: Yes. Number three. I was trying to think if there's anyone that's actually had three episodes on the podcast, and this might be the first that's done three dedicated episodes. I actually, in preparation for this podcast too, I wanted to sound smart and find that word for when you do three, of something is, and there's like triennium and trimester and none of them really seemed right. So I Googled the phrase, what is the name for the third? And you know how then Google suggests things underneath And so the top three things that Google suggested to finish my sentence was, what is the name of the third step of thermal cycling? So that was no good. And then what is the name of the third Sunday of Advent? And so that was no helpful either. But then the third one was, what was the name of the third Fast and the Furious movie? So I don't have actually a name for what this is, Tim. I just wasted two minutes of this episode talking about that, so...
1: As a soccer player, I'll just take it as a hat trick. That's good for me. (laughs) I should
0: have just asked you at the start of it. There you go. go. Why did I ask Google? Hey, look, it's great to have you on because we get to learn a bit more about what you've done. You came on back in episode 50. That was June 2020, so about 12 months ago. What have you been up to since then?
1: A lot of real coalface work, Pete, rolling out some interesting new digitally enabled models of care in primary care, so in particular... Have been doing some work with PHNs in rural and remote areas, rolling out models for remote monitoring and also for social prescribing. So, two really interesting new innovative models of care. And have spent a lot of time dealing with and having the privilege to work with doctors and nurses. Look, Back of an envelope calculation, I think we've probably spoken to two, 300 doctors and nurses in the last 12 months on those issues alone. And so it's been really an educational process in understanding the needs of some of those doctors and nurses a bit better. And some of the things we're going to talk about today, I think, reflect some of what I've learned in that last year. Nice
0: one. We've covered remote patient monitoring a fair bit on the show recently, and obviously that's been in the spotlight a lot with telehealth, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit in detail. But I just back to another one. You mentioned, did you say social prescribing? Because we've talked in the past about digital prescribing. Is that a similar thing, prescribing digital apps, or is that something different that we're talking about?
1: This is a phrase that comes out of the UK and is emerging in its popularity here. So social prescribing is the idea that the cause of a lot of chronic disease in particular lies upstream in psychosocial causes of disease and the social determinants of health. And so therefore we're seeking to equip medical professionals and other health workers with the ability to prescribe non-medical interventions. So where somebody, for example, might be suffering with social isolation, yes, they might need some medication that might be appropriate, but they might also need something that helps connect them to community. So being able to refer them to an organisation where they could volunteer or take part in a community activity. If someone's struggling with food security, referring them to a food bank as part of an overall holistic treatment plan. So it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to have a digital system where you have at your fingertips access to all of the information about those services. So a lot of the work in social prescribing is not just having a digital system to do the act of prescribing, but also building a directory of social services to put into the hands of medical professionals and then being able to refer to those services in appropriate ways and having agreements that you might do that referral. So it's a really interesting and emerging area that I think offers a lot of potential, it sits very much on the edge of the way that a lot of medical professionals practice, but we've seen some really interesting uptake in the last six months or so.
0: Very interesting. i keen to delve into that a bit more later on probably, but what opposed at the start of the episode was this concept that we've missed something in the foundations of digital healthcare. Do you think that's a valid question to ask?
1: Yeah, I do. I'm probably as guilty of this as anyone else, but having worked in this field for over 15 years now, And we've been busily getting on with building what I call the foundations of digital health, some of the elements of national infrastructure and some of the foundational systems that we need, like clinical information systems, patient management systems. And yet, sometimes we've seen limited success in the implementation of those systems. And as we have worked more and more at the front line with real doctors and real nurses, what we've seen are some of the things to be successful and not necessarily in place. So obviously, when you go into rural areas, there are issues with telecommunications infrastructure. There's some very fundamental things like that. But there are also more interesting issues like the digital health literacy of health providers. Are doctors and nurses adequately skilled to be able to uptake some of these new digitally enabled models of care? And I guess the point I want to make is we've made a number of big assumptions about that being the case. Doctors, nurses are smart people, so therefore, like the rest of us, they'll just be able to take these solutions easily and adapt to them. And the reality that we've seen over the last year or 18 months is that that's not necessarily the case. And some of these things are actually getting in the way of successful implementation. And it's really interesting, as as we've been now often, doctors say to us, I'm really worried about my patients' digital health literacy. And yet, in reality, that's rarely actually a problem. I have a number of octogenarians, who are multi-morbid chronic disease patients, quite happily entering data on mobile phone apps every day. And we have one example of a guy who's been doing that every day without fail for three months. So it's certainly possible to have patients, even non-digital native patients, who are very, very compliant. And there's a lot of studies out of the UK that show that's the case. However, we've struggled mightily with many health workers feeling comfortable with using technology and how to revise our training and education strategies to move back to some more fundamental elements of digital literacy, not just digital health literacy, but digital literacy and the use of computers. One of my staff was teaching a practice manager in a relatively progressive practice how to copy and paste a URL into a web browser the other day. And these are some of the things we deal with on a daily basis. It's no value judgment on people who struggle with those things. It's a recognition that they are part of the work that we need to do. And I think we need to be more explicit in recognizing that there is a huge range of digital literacy and we need to be a bit better at tailing different resources for people who are at different points on that spectrum.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's been a fair bit of focus, I guess, recently, depending on what you're watching or who you're listening to, but around enablement of workforce in digital health. And that conversation then usually goes down the line of we need to be enabling the workforce to be more proficient in digital health. So here's a qualification in health informatics or something else like that. It sounds like that's like running and we need to be able to even get up and crawl.
1: I totally wanna recognize the importance of that work. And I know the Australian Institute of Digital Health is doing some great work in that space. And I certainly wanna recognize that. And it's absolutely, we need qualifications. But yes, I want to say there are multiple streams here. There are people who are not digitally confident. Let's look at the demographics of a lot of our rural medical workforce or our nursing workforce. And often you're talking about people into their 50s who are not digital natives, who don't necessarily feel confident. You combine that with what I would call the iPhone effect, which is the expectation that we now pick up a new application and use it without training. We have raised the bar on user experience so high that people expect to be able to intuitively navigate an interface. Now, whether that is a reasonable expectation for software with the complexity of medical software is a thing to be debated. But the reality is that the software, the medical industry, the health industry has designed in the last 10 or 20 years has not been up to that standard. We have not done a great job of making life easy for medical professionals. And we are a long way away from the user experience that you get on an iPhone. So we have to lift the bar in terms of design and some modern systems are really starting to get there, but we're still encumbered with a lot of legacy systems that leave a lot of older members of the workforce utterly intimidated and struggling to know what to do And that's before we even get to working in some areas where we have high indigenous populations, indigenous health workers who also struggle where English is not necessarily their first language. So we've been seeking to really bring some more science to this space and think more carefully about it. So rather than just recognizing it as a challenge, we can actually begin to address it as well.
0: Yeah, and it leans on a familiar issue that many vendors or those creating solutions or even supporting the services around enabling digital health come across, which is around the change management piece when it comes to these technologies. The change management aspect of implementing digital health solutions is usually the trickiest part. It sounds like a lot of what you're talking about is focused around the change management side.
1: Yeah, look, absolutely it is. Firstly, I would say that a technology solution is not a model of care. And through COVID, we've seen a lot of health organisations panic buying different digital health solutions that they've been told that they need, and then seeing either not being clear what health need they bought it for, or trying to ram it in without necessarily thinking through its consequences. When I think about the remote monitoring model that we put in place in Gippsland, it took us 18 months to design the model of care that wrapped around the technology. So we had to think through a number of very complex issues of how will this fit into clinical workflow? What will be the user experience? How will it integrate? What are the incentives and what MBS items can be claimed by people using this? which health workers should be involved and where in that clinical workflow, what are the medico-legal risks, what are the issues of privacy and informed consent, you can begin to see that just because you have a technology solution doesn't mean you've solved all of those challenges. So we have a lot to do there. The second part was trying to, as I said, bring some science to this change management space. And there's a lot of, I think what these days is called anecdata, a bunch of anecdotes that are put together to become some kind of pseudoscience but what we did was develop a digital health maturity assessment that we rolled out across every single general practice in Gippsland and asked a series of questions that sought to understand, number one, the current state technology in use, but secondly, how that technology is used, so the processes by which it's used, and then the readiness and willingness of that practice to change. And then triangulated some of those questions by having the PHN itself answer the same questions and see whether the practice was necessarily being realistic about itself. And in asking that series of questions, it took about half an hour. We typically did those questions by sitting down with a practice manager. It gave us data so we could begin to classify people into different maturity tiers. And what we ended up doing was putting every practice into a foundational, intermediate or advanced tier not so that we would punish or reward them, but so we could pivot our change management approach based on their needs. So at the top end, you have some practices who are already off their own bat implementing new models of care, and they don't need encouragement to do that, but they might need some information and some help around the right things to do. At the other end of the spectrum, you have practices that are deeply cynical about digitization, some of whom are still writing on paper cards, who need a thoroughly different conversation about why we even do this before we get anywhere close to how you should do it and the interaction styles are different those more foundational practices need more face-to-face work and less so as you get higher up the chain although obviously you want to do as much face-to-face as you can because change management in healthcare is about pressing the flesh and the hard yards but what developing this diagnostic tool did was give us a means to like I said build a change toolkit for different points on that maturity spectrum I think for the first time because we've tended to have a one-size-fits-all approach to change and training and education and if I think back to the implementation of the My Health Record that's largely true and I think that's been a source of a number of major challenges.
0: And you can think of the challenge in two directions as a single vendor implementing their bespoke solution that's something that they could do themselves in terms of understanding the needs of their end users to tailor their training or the change management whatever based on a level of proficiency be it basic intermediate advanced but I think the bigger challenge would come the other way looking at implementing large-scale solutions across the country at scale and hoping for success especially coming off the back of federal budget being uh, at least uh, the perception of a lot of money available to be able to roll out some solutions. But I guess if all of this money is available to spend, we'd want to make sure that those foundations are right and the approach is done correctly to avoid having any kind of big waste of money happen again.
1: If I pick a couple of examples, so with remote monitoring, for example, that's a relatively advanced digitally enabled model of care that represents some new ways of practicing for a lot of general practice, for example, if we're talking about it in that primary care context. And what our digital health maturity assessment did was determine that there are certain practices who are not yet ready to go about implementing that. And again, that I think is a a new approach where we said we're not trying to punish people and we need to be very careful that we're not exacerbating the digital divide quite the opposite. But there are certain practices that are not culturally ready to go about implementing new sophisticated models of care. Because if you are deeply cynical about digitization and you haven't reached that point yet, then no amount of training is going to get you to be successful with remote monitoring. We have a different kind of work to do with those practices. So we used it to gate who effectively should do what at any given point in time. But it's also interesting to think about something like this in the context of telehealth. Recent Commonwealth Department figures show that over 99% of telehealth has been done on the phone, or is now being, I think it was higher than that during COVID, but has come down, so 99% plus is done on the phone. And I think there's a really interesting sort of preconditions, conditions for success conversation to be had on this topic because number one, I'm not sure we've integrated it into clinical workflows and user experience in the way that makes it easy to do this. But secondly, I don't think we've necessarily done a great job of communicating the value of video-based telehealth. My personal anecdote, which doesn't make a strategy, but my GP won't let me do video conferencing, they just phone me. But I've met a lot of GPs who say, oh, patients don't want to do video. Well, Well, actually, I do. You've never given me the choice. I suspect that the reality is a little more nuanced in that we haven't made the workflow easy and we haven't communicated well that in certain situations video might be better. And I think what all of that points to is we have to do a better job of communicating the fundamental value of digital health to many health providers. Now, I appreciate the clinicians who are part of your Talking Health Tech community probably at this point going but we get it and there is a certain skew i think in your audience towards people who would but let's remember the vast bulk of that workforce are very very busy with just day-to-day activities and don't have a lot of time for thinking about and, and understanding these value propositions and still see digital health as really administrative process putting data into clinical systems is about billing, it's about administration, we fundamentally have to change that attitude so it's not seen as administrative but rather clinical. Like if we don't document well, then we've got our patients a greater clinical safety and quality risk. And I think that's one of the shifts we have to try and achieve through medical education.
0: No, totally. And we've got a good mix of those that do check out the podcast. I agree, certainly more skewed towards the acceptance of digital health, but a lot of those responsible also for the rollout at a larger scale, too. So it's always useful to be across those things. And if we shifted a little bit from the discussion around workforce for a second and the workforce enablement side of things and to other issues more broadly around the fundamentals and the foundations of digital health, you touched on quickly around the infrastructure side of things and mentioned that those are kind of in play. And we're going to be talking a little bit around infrastructure in a separate session at the Winter Summit with a few key people as well around, be it MBN and phone and all those kind of things that are infrastructure. Is there much that needs to be done from an infrastructure side of things in your own perspective, or is that just a wait for it to be rolled out? And once it is, then we'll all be okay.
1: A lot of the work of building that infrastructure is outside of the direct control of the health organisations who need it, so there is ongoing work around lobbying, but I think the medical community, the software community, vendors can give more thought to the models of care that they are designing, not just technology solutions but the contexts in which they will be implemented. I'm currently doing some work in the Torres and Cape region And obviously, network connectivity is a very material issue there, because sometimes we'll lose connectivity for two or three days. What that means is some of these new models of care that have a patient app that is the patient-facing component of that model of care, how we bring the patient in to that model of care, we need to do a better job of thinking through how those will work offline, how we will be able to send data periodically some of the models of care I deal with have not yet reached the point of thinking through how we hook back into a network once it becomes available and send data. Obviously, it's incredibly prohibitive when it comes to something like telehealth, it just stops that because you need real time connectivity. But there are other models of care around remote monitoring where we can wait two or three days to send the data. But right now, a lot of the apps that we have to do that will just fail. You know, They have failure modes that are not friendly to patients or health providers. So I think we need to do a better design job of thinking that through.
0: I want to come back to the point you made around stuff that's outside of the realm of control of clinicians. But before we do that, I want to have a discussion around remote patient monitoring too. I mentioned we have covered it a bit in terms of what it is and the potential of it, but you've mentioned that you've worked with some rural and remote areas and about implementing some solutions. It's great to be able to hear some real world examples of it being used in practice and delivering some value because often RPM gets talked about, you know, the phase two of telehealth because everyone talks around telehealth around, is it video or phone? But there's so much more to that. So I'm keen to learn from you about what you've been working on in the remote patient monitoring space.
1: I'm not at a that gathers data on a periodic basis from consumers with one or more chronic diseases. We spent probably six to nine months working with a group of clinicians to look through different standards and evidence for disease types and work out what should we monitor and how frequently. And I think a lot of what I would call first generation remote patient monitoring is very focused on vital signs. And don't get me wrong, those things are wonderful, but they obviously pose some logistical challenges in buying and giving devices to patients, particularly in a COVID age of infection control. One of the other things we've noticed is the incredible role of patient-reported outcomes or symptoms data in detecting patient deterioration. So a lot of the the chronic diseases we're monitoring, and we've built up a pool of about 20 to 25 different diseases that we're capable of monitoring with this system, rely heavily on symptom or patient-reported outcome data not instead of, but predominantly over and above vital sign data because it often gives the best indication of a patient's state and potential deterioration. So put simply, if you have respiratory disease and we're asking you about your cough and your pain in your chest, tightness and your wheezing, those kind of symptom information is really instructive in terms of determining whether you're deteriorating. Um, the second thing we've seen is not just does it, it help with avoiding hospitalization and reducing length of stay because patients are at lower acuity when we recognize they need help. Thirdly, and I think this is really underestimated, it's driven patient engagement. So by the act of a patient reporting on those things every day, they've become more aware of their symptoms and looking out for and managing their symptoms. And we've had some wonderful narrative feedback from our health providers going, our patients are starting to think more about their condition thinking about their wheezing they're thinking about the goals that they have and that's a wonderful side effect of this and in fact i think is overlooked quite often in terms of remote patient monitoring
0: connecting to the point around patient reported outcome measures i don't know if it's because i've been focusing on it more over the past 6 to 12 months or if it's just become more apparent but there seems to be slowly more of an increased focus on this at a higher level around proms is that something you're seeing as well
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's now a real recognition that this data is important. Obviously, we have standardised assessments that we build into clinical processes, things people would know like K10, DAS21, PHQ9, these standard measures, and there's good clinical evidence for their usage. But we shouldn't remember also, as I said before, just the basic reporting on symptoms. How bad is your pain today? is in a sense a patient reported outcome, albeit it's not in a standardized measure. So we can have quite a broad definition of what that data is and it's incredibly helpful in terms of building a picture of what patients experienced and not forgetting PREMS to the experience because what proportion of care do we deliver that is not the care that patients actually wanted? If we get a great clinical outcome, but the outcome is not the patient's outcome, not the outcome that the patient wanted, was that good care? One could argue that it's not good care if the patient didn't want that. And I may have given you this example before. I had a friend who was diagnosed with stage four cancer, and he swears that his initial experience of that was a bunch of fairly macho male oncologists who were trying to keep him alive for as many days as possible. And he felt that he had to wrestle control of his care off them at a certain price emotionally. And interestingly, he's still alive. I think it's not unrelated. But he had to say to them, "Look, I'm prepared to die, but I want to live with the greatest quality of life in the time that I have left. I don't want to be kept alive at any cost. And that's an extreme, but a really good example of how we could deliver technically good care that is not the care that the patient wants. And if we translate that back into the chronic disease world, we have to gather patient-reported outcome data so that we know that we're getting a good combination of clinical outcomes, but also patient outcomes that patients want to see as well.
0: Yeah. No, that's really fascinating. too. it's not like an advanced care directive or anything like that when a person's at a point where they can't make decisions. It's literally all of those decisions where there's a defined good clinical outcome, but is that the right patient experience and is that what the patient wanted? So that's a, a
1: fascinating one. I think a lot of us will have experienced that in our own way with clinicians to a degree, yeah. uh, obviously not to that extreme degree, I hope, but it's a good question. And Healthcare of all industries does a terrible job at getting information about what kind of outcomes our customers got and where they're satisfied with those outcomes. And I suspect as we start to gather that, in patches, we're going to see some fairly horrific things. In other places, we'll see some wonderful things. But we have to confront ourselves with these realities so we can start the process of continuous improvement. And... It's, yeah, it, it beggars belief that we haven't done this sooner, but it is more than time for this work.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Hey, back to the point we made before around things outside the realm of control when it comes to getting the foundations right in digital health before we start to close things out, Tim. We talked around the workforce digital literacy as being one thing to improve upon when it comes to the foundations and there were some other bits and pieces too but there's a lot that's outside of the control that you suggested of a clinician or a practice when it comes to these things the incentives and all of those other bits and pieces how do you deal with that when you're engaging on a day-to-day on the ground with the clinics looking at the change management piece there's so much outside of their control that speaks to these points how do you grapple with that?
1: Well, look, firstly, it's recognising really nice, that that's the case. So firstly, it's communicating to people that there are a bunch of preconditions for success, whether it's digital literacy an understanding of the role of data, the role of incentivization in clinical behaviours, other areas of government policy. All of these things matter to the success of digital health. And some of them are in an OK place. Some of them are absolutely not. But firstly is the recognition. And secondly is... If you're an organisation working with a lot of clinicians, doing some basic work on communicating the value of digital health, the value of data, so that people have a good understanding of the connection between things. Because we mustn't assume that people want to behave in the wrong ways. Often it's just that they don't necessarily connect dots. So I think there's a lot that is actually within the control of organisations that remains undone. That's the first point, really, actually just doing what we can that's within that sphere. And secondly, many of us in this industry continue to press on government in different ways to do things differently and to do things they should be doing. But frankly, the more people understand the need for these kind of changes, one example would be changes in the way that we incentivize primary care and the fee for service system leads to a bunch of side effects that are not necessarily conducive to delivering digital health. We need that to some degree to change. But what we're changing is not simple. It's not just a fee for service system. It's a whole culture that has built around that over the last 40 or 50 years. So these changes are not going to be overnight changes, but the more that we have a workforce, and I'm very confident that the younger workforce is kind of getting this, and but they shouldn't have to behave in the right ways despite the incentivisation system. They should be aided through it. So I'm hopeful that as more people understand, we will pressure government to make the right changes to develop an environment that's more conducive to delivering digital health success.
0: Hey Tim, closing things out, you know we're going to continue this conversation at the Talking Health Tech Winter Summit on the twenty fourth of June. You'll be speaking in a panel discussion with a few other people who will provide some interesting perspectives on the topic around the conditions for success in digital health, including, I'm sure that aged care will be discussed given that George Margielis is within the panel as well, but there'll be other discussions too, no doubt. Is there anything you're expecting or any key points you're hoping that will be discussed within this particular session at the summit?
1: I think broadly, some of the conditions for success or the lack thereof are the same, but the context, the healthcare delivery contexts are different. So, as we think about acute care, primary care, allied health, specialist care, aged care, they're all at different points on a maturity curve. And so, yes, I think it'll be a really interesting discussion to talk about some of the relative places in maturity. But as we were talking about earlier, I think we need tools that recognise that maturity journey and meet health organisations and individual health workers where they're at on that journey. If we can come away with one thing, I think it's that we need to become more nuanced and more scientific in this change space where we're not just developing messaging and training and education for one audience, but we actually meet people where they're at on that spectrum.
0: Yeah. I think that's really actionable too. It's a good way to close it out, and something that as an industry we can achieve too, but also the individual providers of services and solutions can also be looking at how they can tailor their change management approach. For towards achieving something of success would be something that everyone can take away from just this episode, let alone the session that's going to happen at the summit a bit later this month. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining. We could talk for another 30, 45 minutes, I'm sure, on all of this and much more, but we'll leave it there and maybe you can join us for episode, I don't know, 250 or whatever it'll be next time we chat.
1: was oh, good. Thanks, Peter.
0: Thanks for listening to the show